You are now listening to the Protestant Libertarian Podcast. All right, guys, welcome to another episode of the Protestant Libertarian Podcast. On the show with me today, I have Cody Cook. He is an author, a podcaster. He's written a number of great articles for um, different publications, and I'm really excited to introduce him to you. If you are not following him on Twitter yet, you definitely should, and I think that if you like a lot of the things that we do on this show, you're going to love a lot of the work that Cody's done. Cody, welcome to the Protestant Libertarian Podcast. Hey, I'm excited to be here. Thanks for having me, man. Yeah, this is going to be great. So, uh, and again, we were talking before the show about um, your background story, and I think you and I kind of have a very similar uh, life trajectory. So I'm excited to hear all about it. So just talk to us a little bit about yourself, your work, and your background. All right. Um, So I live near uh, Cincinnati, Ohio. I always kind of grew up around there, so I haven't haven't been too far away from Cincinnati. (laughs) Um, And uh, I grew up with nominal Christianity on my mom's side and fundamentalist ish kind of Southern Baptist Christianity on my dad's side. So naturally I was an atheist by the time I was 11. Uh, and, uh, you know, looking back, uh, so there's kind of two parts here, I guess we're talking about libertarian and Christian or Protestant and Christian or or libertarian. And, um, so that's kind of my religious side, The, the political stuff. I think as I, as I look back, um, I've become more and more aware that probably what kind of put me on a trajectory toward libertarianism slash anarchism was public schooling. <laughs> and uh, I, I just developed a real sense kind of early on about this sort of arbitrary authoritarianism, um, which made me sort of a kind of a compulsive contrarian, um, even when it wasn't really necessary. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, because of that, I, I, you know, I spent, you know, my kind of uh, adolescence as this sort of anti-authoritarian guy, but I would kind of veer back and forth between kind of left-wing extremism and like libertarianism because I hadn't really learned to think systematically yet. And so at that time I made like conspiracy theory documentaries and like weird, like message heavy art films throughout high school. Uh, one of my documentaries is even featured on Alex Jones's website, Infowars. Oh, cool. uh, and uh, since that, since that time though, I've, I found a more nuanced and thoughtful Christianity as well as a more adult form of libertarianism that isn't so gay frog centric. Uh, praise be <laughs> to God. So, um, so yeah, became a Christian again um, in high school that's kind of its own story, I suppose. But, um, but because of that, you know, I become my sort of very focused personality. I wanted to learn everything about my faith. So I started attending Bible college. I got my uh, BA. I'm just a couple classes away from finishing my master's right now. Uh, but it's been a, a long process. So instead of taking four years to get my BA, it was like 10 or 11 years, um, just taking classes when I could afford it and stuff, but, but always, you know, continuing to, to, to research and study on the side. And, um, so I've written a few books, um, one that's pr- probably particularly relevant uh, to some of the stuff uh, that your listeners might be interested in is a book called Fight the Powers, which is about the relationship uh, the, the, the Bible presents between spiritual forces and political powers. Um, so I kind of developed that a little bit more. Um, and there's some real, really interesting and kind of wild stuff there. But um, so, yeah, so I, I write books and articles now. I record videos, podcasts, all centered on Christian theology. Uh, and often incorporating kind of libertarian anarchist thought, um, uh, the latter, particularly since I've decided to kind of rebrand and focus my content more. I did the the thing that a lot of people do when they become a Christian where they're like, I'm going to have a generically Christian podcast. And it's like, well, that's you know, no one's going to listen to that. Um, so um, so I've been trying to refocus since I did, did talk about that stuff some. I'm trying to kind of make that more of a more of a component to, to the content that I put out. But the website. Um, in the podcast is Cantus Firmus. The website is Cantus-Firmus.com. And that's a line from, um, uh, it's based on a, it pulled from one of 
Dietrich Bonhoeffer's letters and papers from prison. It's a, actually a musical term. It refers to this kind of central melody that these sort of other melodies play around. And his argument was Christ is that central melody um, and that we sort of need to organize our lives and our loves around Christ as the center. That was So that it comes from that sort of desire that I wanted to do where I was going to be a generically Christian <laughs> podcaster and I could talk about anything else as long as it was centered around Christ. Uh, but now I'm, uh, like I said, a little more focused. Yeah. And I mean, your, your work is, your work is really good for it. I've listened to some of your, your things. Like I said, I have, I have several of your books on my Amazon wish list. I bought the book that you wrote, um, about the old Testament. I'm really excited to dive into that one. One of my good friends, uh, was a huge Andy Stanley fan. And when that book unhitched came out about how, uh, about how he thought that we ought to, um, to, you know, to, I guess, unhitch the old Testament from the new Testament. Uh, I read that book and we talked about it a lot. So it was, I'm, I'm, it was really interesting that you have like an entire critique of that way of understanding the Old Testament. What motivated you to start like writing books? And, and what was the, what's the process of writing books for you? Yeah. Um, you know, it's different for everybody um, as far as the process, I guess, because, <clears throat> excuse me, I remember hearing that like, uh, you know, Tolkien like hated the fact that Lewis could just like write a book and be done with it. Um, you know, Tolkien was very methodical when he would sort of go back and tweak it and add to it. My process is a little bit more like Lewis's, I think. Um, you know, I, I I listen to a lot of things, read a lot of books, listen to a lot of books, and um, kind of jot down little notes. And then I uh, I kind of work kind of through it. I sort of organize the, the, the text in my head a little bit, figure out how I want to do it. So that book um, that you're referencing that you'd bought for me, Unhitched, um, I knew I was going to talk about these, these sort of attempts to kind of cut the Old Testament off from the faith. So I started thinking about, well, who are some of the, the main people I know who are doing that? <laughs> and so mm-hmm. I kind of focused, you know, so like a guy like Keith Giles, for example, is somebody who's really doing this kind of pro, uh, updated Marcionism where it was like, we're going to, that's not really as inspired maybe as what Jesus has to say. And then you have a guy like Greg Boyd, whose approach is more like origin, where he's like, of course it's inspired. We just have to reinterpret it in a way that doesn't really make sense in the original context. Um, and then you have a guy like Andy Stanley, who's like, well, of course it's inspired. We just don't want to talk about it. It's not relevant for us. <laughs> and that's like almost this kind of hyper dispensationalist thing. So, um, so th- anyway, so just kind of spending time going down those, once you can kind of separate those out, you can spend a little time thinking about how, how you want to craft your arguments. Um, when I wanted to write for longer than I did, um, you know, cause I enjoy it. Um, I, I blogged a little bit. I thought about writing a book, but there's this kind of imposter syndrome where you don't, you're like, I'm not ready. I don't, you know, I don't know what I'm talking about. I think at that point I didn't have my bachelor's even yet, but I've been doing this for like years already. Um, and uh, so eventually I just kind of, you know, kind of worked through it and prayed through it and worked through the imposter syndrome and just started doing it. Um, and so far it's, it's, it's gone well. It's, it's, you know, writing about theology um, is pretty niche. Um, but, uh, I have, I have friends who have done, um, you know, publishing in that area who, you know, are not like Andy Stanley or whatever. Um, and I think based on my conversations with them, I think I'm actually doing okay. <laughs> yeah. uh, it's, it's not very lucrative if you're not, you know, attached to an institution of some kind, but. Yeah. Well, your books cover again a lot of a lot of the topics that we cover on the show. Just that very uh interesting blend of theology and biblical studies and kind of political philosophy as well. And I really appreciate that. So before we get into the topic that we're going to talk about tonight, which is the connection between libertarianism and Christian or libertarianism and Christmas, um what what's what's your what's your or, what's your Christian and your libertarian origin story? I know that th- these are probably very long and detailed backstories, but if you could kind of reduce like, how did you become a Christian? 
Christian again in high school? And then what was the path that led you to libertarianism? Yeah, I guess I think libertarianism is just kind of figuring out um, what my anti-authoritarian bent sort of meant, um, you know, seeing the sort of the sort of arbitrariness of, of the way of authority often works its way out um, and particularly violence and coercion. Um, you know, it, it, in that sense, it's kind of amazing that it took me so long to sort of settle under libertarianism. Um, but, you know, you sort of have this, um, you know, kind of bleeding heart thing where you're always like, yeah, of course, all this stuff the government does is bad. And, but, you know, there's some stuff that's really important that would, maybe the government has to do, right? Until you sort of figure out that there's maybe other ways to do those things that you don't have to set them aside. <laughs> um, you, you, you kind of might struggle a little bit, you know? Um, so my, my libertarian path was, um, was probably inevitable in, in that sense. Um, you know, but the, the Christian stuff, um, you know, like I said, I, I was an atheist when I was pretty young, like 10 or 11. Um, before that, my, my dad's family is Southern Baptist. It's a very sort of conservative. Um, and I had different, um, issues. Some of them were, um, you know, uh, concerns about, um, I guess, theological concerns, you could say. So uh, one thing that helped me sort of reconsider Christianity was that I became close friends with the Seventh-day Adventist. And he explained, you know, they have this sort of view on hell, the conditionalist or uh, um, um, uh, annihilationist viewpoint, um, where it's not, you know, eternal conscious torment, but destruction. And that made me sort of think, oh, okay, that's interesting. And looking at the scripture and saying, okay, there's actually some warrant for this. That made me feel a little more comfortable with, you know, that aspect of it, you know? Um, so there was that, um, there was this kind of whole thing where I think I didn't want to really be a Christian because I became this kind of, uh, I became really interested in like sixties countercultural stuff. And it was like this kind of, you know, narcissistic kind of, you know, not like a mean guy, but just kind of, you know, um, very, um, you know, pleasure seeking. And, um, you know, I thought that that meant, you know, if, if I were going to be anti-authoritarian, that, you know, that sort of meant this kind of free willing libertinism. And so I didn't want to be a Christian really. Um, and uh, it was something where God started working on my heart. And, you know, once you sort of start telling God, you know, leave me alone so I can be an atheist, the jig is up, you know, there's, there's, there's obviously a problem um, and you have to resolve it one way or another. Um, and so, yeah, so different things like that. Anyway, some, some brush was cleared through that kind of apologetic stuff. Uh, and, uh, you know, I just, it became more and more difficult to deny the existence of God from personal experience. Um, and that just kind of led me back. It was slow. Um, because of that, you know, lack of trust for authority. Um, I was not really an Orthodox Christian for a while. So like, um, you know, I, I would look at like the Jehovah's witness stuff on like the deity of Christ and stuff. And, um, you know, try to read very closely with scripture and, you know, became convinced, okay, yeah, this is, this is there. And when I started college, um, I wasn't even Trinitarian. I think I was like, I sort of saw the Holy Spirit as like this force. And it wasn't until um, I took a class on the book of Acts and had to work through Acts systematically um, that I was like, okay, no, this is there too, right? Um, and so um, there's this quote from G.K. Chesterton that he'd said, you know, when he was constructing his heresy, uh, you know, bit by bit, he kind of stepped back and, and saw that it was orthodoxy. Uh, and and that's, that's kind of where I am. You know, I, I have a few views that are, um, you know, second tier, third tier stuff that maybe seem a little odd, like, you know, the nonviolence and, you know, Christian anarchism and, um, you know, that view on hell. Um, but when it comes to all the, the central stuff, I'm, you know, I'm right there. Um, and, uh, and, and it wasn't through tradition. It wasn't because I felt obligated to fit in. Um, I worked through it through scripture and, and that's where I ended up. <laughs> yeah. 
That's beautiful. I mean, that's that's exactly where I'm at too. It's uh, it's really funny that you say that because I, I'm I'm the same way. When I was in Bible, class, I have a degree in biblical studies, and I was going through um as I was going through uh, college, you take all of these high level classes on theology and on biblical history, and it's very easy to start to see how the like there are definitely flaws with the way that a lot of historic Orthodox doctrines are portrayed by the church, not the doctrine themselves, uh, but the, but the way that they're taught and the way that they're portrayed. So it's very easy to break some of those portrayals down. But then when you get to the root of it, it's like the the core of Christianity is incredibly consistent, but there is a lot of space yeah. for flexibility around the margins, you know, because I'm, I'm like you, I'm an annihilationist. And I came to that view hmm. through studying the Bible. And there are a lot of, there are a lot of, uh, there are a lot of positions that I like you hold that might be considered quirky or, uh, you know, kind of out in left field, um, but then aren't inconsistent with the core tenets of Christianity. And, and I, I wonder if people that just have, uh, like you and I, that natural anti-authority authoritarian strain to them. I wonder, I wonder yeah. if people like us just kind of gravitate towards those, uh, those perspectives. I don't know. It could be, I, I, I'm glad to hear you say you're an annihilationist. Cause when I brought that up, I was like, you know, because Protestant can mean different things to different people. I'm thinking like, am I talking to this kind of, you know, like reformed, you know, <laughs> kind of hardcore dude, or am I talking you know, not that being, you know, there's a kind of, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. About, you know, um, uh, it is going to be upset with me. So, uh, so I'm glad to hear that you're, you're, you have some sympathies with that perspective. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I, I would say that I would consider myself to be like post-confessional. It's not that I think that the confessions are bad, but I think that a lot of the times these church confessions act as kind of an interpretive framework through which we view the Bible. And as a, pot, a Protestant, I believe in the authority of scripture and that sometimes, well, not sometimes, I think oftentimes if you are confessional, your confession comes before the scriptures instead of allowing the scriptures to critique or, um, impact the confessions. Yeah. And so the, 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 that, that's, I guess, for me, always been kind of the sticking point. I think that the Bible is really the only source of authority. And I want to, I want to, um, I guess, analyze or interpret these other traditions that we have within Christianity through the lens of the scriptures, if that makes sense. Yeah. You know, one thing that's maybe a little bit surprising about me is that the more I've spent, um, looking at some of the stuff and, and doing some reading and thinking about it, um, I've developed a deep respect for tradition. And, and, and I would say, you know, only scripture is, um, I wouldn't say only scripture isn't, can be an authority. I would say it's the only God breathed authority. Right. So that puts it on a special level, but, um, you know, I, I've one concern that I sort of can have at times is like, I do think, you know, scripture is not a, a creed and it's not a confession. It's not systematic. So it's, you have to kind of pull that stuff and organize it to kind of get your creeds. Right. And, um, and so, you know, I've, I've got a good friend who's a full preterist, um, and, you know, I, I kind of talked to him and I said, you know, I don't think the, 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 the creeds, um, are infallible, but there's a part of it that sort of thinks like, you know, this is part of like these core creeds that like all the denominations and all the different Christian traditions agree on. And at some point, you know, you might not be really Christian anymore. You know, like I'm, I'm not saying anything about your salvation cause I don't, I can't make that kind of, you know, statement, but th there might be certain things that we sort of have to say, okay, we all kind of agree on this. This is really, and it's not only something we agree peripherally on it's agree. It's like central, you know, it's like all traditions maybe have had certain negative views about human sexuality, but that's not central. You know, there's anti-Semitism in all strains of Christianity, but that's not central. That's something we can sort of say that was garbage. We're throwing that away. Um, but there is a part of me that kind of likes, you know, thinks we do have to have some, something in the center that we sort of 
confess to? I don't know. Does, does that make sense? Or, or Yeah, or? I completely agree. And for me, it's the resurrection. I mean, I really do feel like that is at the center of all Christian. Like if you believe that Jesus is the Messiah and that God raised him from the dead, I mean, that's at the heart of like Paul's explanation of the gospel in Romans and first Corinthians. And so I feel like if that is your center, then I think you're on the right track for, for that, that at least that's the way that I look at it. I don't know if you feel the same way or not. Yeah. You know, to me, there's this kind of thing where you can always, um, you can always simplify it. Right. And so like, I, I think um, the idea of a resurrection is like, if, if you had to say it in like one word or two words, Jesus's resurrection or something. Right. Um, I do. I, I like that as like, if you're, if you have to break it down that, that much, but I think to me, there's a lot of stuff that's contained in the resurrection, right? It says something about the human body. It says something about eschatology. It says something about the identity of Christ. It says something about salvation. Um, and, and so there's a lot that gets connected to it. Um, but, but on the other hand, of course, someone could say, well, I affirm the resurrection, but I don't believe in the deity of Christ. Right. And so, uh, th- there's part of me that would want to expand that a little bit more. Um, but yeah, um, that, that might be a conversation for another day though, but it's, it's interesting to think about. Yeah. Especially as Protestants, because we don't have this, this kind of book of the catechism or something. We have to think a little bit about, um, how we can stay true to scripture as the only inspired authority. Uh, but then also we have to, you know, scripture doesn't lay these things out in the same way that we might want them to, this sort of systematic, you know, Protestant kind of way. <laughs> right. Absolutely. Well, I think I'm going to have to have you on for like five or six more episodes. So, uh, you know, we're going to get, we're going to get you booked uh-huh. in 2023, Cody. <laughs> 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 it's great. All right. Well, let's, let's go ahead. So we're here to talk about the relationship between Christian or I keep on saying Christianity. We're talking about the relationship between Christmas, which is a very important part of Christianity and libertarianism. Yeah. And you've written a couple of really good articles that you sent me on Twitter about the relationship between Christmas and libertarianism. And so I want to kind of break those down. Um, but both of them, we're, sure. we're, we're going to take them in turn. The first article that I read is called the state versus Christmas. And you open that piece with the story of Herod attempting to kill Jesus. What is significant about that story? So what I'd say, um, Herod is, I think, one of the first individuals to realize what Christmas really meant, um, which is, I think, uh, surprising, right? Because he's this sort of enemy in the story, but he gets it faster than most everybody else does. <laughs> um, he rightly understands that the birth of Jesus means that a new king is being inaugurated and that that new king threatens the power of all earthly kings, right? So as a result, He's also the first tyrant to try to cancel Christmas. Um, but he didn't just take Merry Christmas off the Starbucks cups. He did something even more extreme than that, if you can imagine. He, he tries to murder the newborn Jesus. Um, so, yeah, that's the significance of that story is that Herod understands what Christmas means. And he understands the danger that it poses to his authority. And he acts in response to that. Yeah. And, and then again, this goes back to, I think, one of the fundamental aspects of Christian libertarianism is that if you believe that Jesus is king, then what, where does that leave all of the other powers that claim to have, you know, legitimate authority in our world? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So one, of the, so you start out with that in the piece, and then you talk about both the Soviet Union and Nazi Germany and how they both either appropriated or condemned Christmas uh, with the goal of strengthening the power of their state. So I want to I want to start with the Soviet Union. What was uh, the Soviet policy towards Christmas, and how does this kind of interact with or relate to the story of Herod? Yeah. So you know the Soviets would sometimes tolerate Christmas in some form or another. Uh, particularly if they took over a heavily Christian country and it was hard to kind of stamp out. 
uh, but whenever feasible, um, particularly like if a, you're in a country like when they would like invade Albania and, and Albania is not like a, a strongly Christian country, you know, um, they would uh, have a more aggressive approach. They would mock it. They would ban it. They would try to replace it um, with Soviet alternatives. Um, so, so responses could range uh, on the softer side to ordering red stars to be placed on Soviet trees <laughs> instead of Christmas trees, right? Or something more aggressive, like forbidding uh, the use of Christmas trees altogether. Um, Poland under communism still had Christmas celebrations, but in other countries, priests who performed Christmas masses were shot or jailed. So um, what else? Let's see. In, instead of looking uh, back toward the birth of Jesus, which they saw as this kind of um, anti-revolutionary regressive mindset, right? The Soviet Russians emphasized New Year celebrations, which looked forward to the victory of the revolution and communism, the new day, right? And so these, you know, uh, instead of getting Christmas gifts, they would give New Year's gifts and they uh, were said to come not from Santa, but Stalin, right? Um, Stalin is sometimes even uh, connected with um, their their kind of Christmas figure, uh, Grandfather Frost. <laughs> um so, um, okay, Soviet youth efforts, um, were, I think, were particularly bizarre. Um, so there's uh, the, the Soviet youth group was called the Komsomols, and uh, they were known to stage show trials where Grandfather Frost uh, was accused of climbing down chimneys as a spy. <laughs> and uh, Cinderella is condemned as a class traitor is another example. Um, effigies of God and Moses are burnt. Uh, songs about preserving trees were saying it was really weird. That's almost kind of like weird. I don't know, like environmentalism or something like Christmas is this, you know, anti-environmentalist uh, holiday, I guess. So, but that gives you some idea of how the Soviets treated Christmas. There's a little bit of a diversity, but for the most part, they were trying to push the Jesus out of it. And, and you know, that would either ban it or make it Soviet. So they would take the elements of the story that they thought were beneficial for the health of the state and eliminate all of the theological content of it. <laughs> Not even, yeah, not even that. I mean, I would say in some cases they would take um, the the artifice of it, right? So it's like, okay, well, you guys are used to Christmas trees, so we'll give you the tree. You're used to a guy with uh, you know, facial hair giving you a gift. Well, we'll give you that. He's Stalin now, but you still have that, right? Um, but yeah, for the most part, I mean, anything that really, when, when you think about, you know, like the Hallmark version of Christmas, you know, <laughs> that, that, that spirit of Christmas that's supposed to stay in your heart all year long or whatever, <laughs> none of that's there. Um, but but the that the the sort of accoutrements are there. The stuff that uh, you'd see on a Christmas card that say, "Oh, the Christmas tree and the star and the yeah, that stuff's there." Yeah. Uh, so the Nazis yeah. are also going to use Christmas as an opportunity for political propaganda, uh, but they're going to do it in a little bit of a different way than the Soviet Union, as you explain in your article. So, what were some of the ways that the Third Reich manipulated the story of Christmas to strengthen the Nazi state? Yeah. So if you pull back a little bit, the Nazis had kind of a broken approach to religion in general. So for them, the power of the German people and state are the supreme value. Um, but then there's this question, how does religion factor in with that? So some Nazi leaders wanted to return to like this Norse polytheism, which they had joined to some bizarre uh, new ideas. Actually, not even that new. Some of them are like over a hundred years old, um, such as the view that the godlike Aryans had come from Atlantis but that their divine bloodline had been corrupted through interbreeding with inferior races. <laughs> um, and I, how would you like to see that in the next Thor movie? <laughs> um, uh, but uh, Hitler, I think was largely uninterested in religion, um, but he tolerated um, for a while anyway, some of these attempts of, um, 
and I'm not saying this to be critical of liberal Christianity, but it largely comes from liberal Protestant German Christianity. Um, these attempts to sort of subsume Christianity under Nazi ideology by removing Jewish elements uh, from the faith, repainting Christ as an Aryan who would expose the evil Jews, cutting off the Old Testament, and defending the sort of blood and soil Christian nationalism. Um, so that's the stepping back. Those are the those are the kind of religious milieu of Germany in the 19 you know 20s, 30s, and 40s, right? So. How did this bizarre sort of swirling of ideas impact the Nazi approach to Christmas? Uh, well, there, there's a 1937 article um, in the State Policy and Propaganda Organ uh, called uh, Die Neue Gemeinschaft, which reflected on this inherent contradiction between German values and Christmas that recognized there was a, a conflict, right? And so I think it sums up pretty well um, what the German, uh, the overall the, the kind of Nazi approach is. Um, it highlighted the need to give, quote, inherited customs a new content consistent with the Volksgemeinschaft or the people's community. Um, the, uh, the author of it, Hans Kremer, had said that a holiday or ceremony should, quote, mobilize the spiritual or emotional strengths of the community for national socialism. For example, Christmas is an inherited holiday about a theoretical peace for all of humanity. That, that's going to come again later, I think, in this conversation, <laughs> the peace for all humanity part. There's no national or social necessity to believe in this peace for all humanity. However, we can present it as a holiday of actual domestic national peace. If we make visible the blessings of this actual peace, along with its foundations and requirements, the Christmas, or then Christmas, doubtless can be a high point in the course of the political year. So not, not, it's not a religious calendar, it's a political calendar now. Both according to popular custom and popular view, the Christmas holiday can justifiably be seen as a festival of the nation. A Christmas ceremony should arouse confidence in our ability to lead the people spiritually, end quote. So in other words, the spiritual needs of the people should be met not by devotion to Christ, but to the state. So it, it should be no surprise then that um, uh, you know children, Nazi children were taught to sing a new version of Silent Night. And actually, the Russians did this too. This is so bizarre, all these sort of Christmas carols that get new new lyrics. Uh, but this one, I think, is particularly uh, bizarre. Uh, you know, silent night, holy night, all is calm, all is bright. Only the chancellor stays on guard, Germany's future to watch and to ward, guiding our nation aright. Adolf Hitler is Germany's star, showing us greatness and glory afar, bringing us Germans the might. So uh, essentially, the Nazis uh, largely, I'd say, sought to co-opt Christianity and Christmas at first. Although over time, I think that the secularism and paganism of Nazi higher-ups uh, saw less of a place for this kind of bastardized form of Christianity. So by the late 1930s, uh, in, in Germany, you have nativity plays, carols, banned in German schools. And so I think there was a time where they thought that Christianity could be useful for the Nazis, and they were willing to sort of tolerate it as long as they could modify it. But I think they saw it more and more as a, a contradiction that had to be uh, resolved uh, through, through basically getting rid of it. Yeah, and you make the point that uh, that the common denominator really between Herod, the Soviets, and the Nazis is that they all uh, attempt to eliminate uh, any sort of political competition. Is it the is it the I guess the power of the state or the the power of the existing authorities that is the the thing that binds all these three stories together? Or how do you how do you see them relating to one another? Yeah, I think it's fear. So um, you know, Christ calls us to a higher allegiance in the state. And this scares authoritarians, I think, in at least two ways. So one, um, it relativizes their authority and power, and it weakens their false projection of godlike authority in the eyes of their subjects. And uh, I would say if I can get a little Freudian, I think it weakens their own 
uh, projection of themselves as, as gods, right? Um, uh, another thing, though, is uh, in case of secular rulers like Stalin, the good news that God has joined himself to humanity to bring us eternal life is decidedly bad news. So if my subjects believe that death is not their end because God will raise them up and that he'll justify them if they do right, then I've lost the power that basically Satan has given to all tyrants, which is the fear of death. So in the case of, and that sounds a little, when I, it sounds a little weird, I say Satan's given it to them, but um, I, I, I'm not imagining this kind of, um, uh, you know, lizard people you know, meeting in, 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 you know, in the basement of the Capitol or anything like that. I'm just sort of reflecting on this tradition in scripture that, uh, that you find like in Luke and Matthew when during the temptation of uh, Jesus, where Satan says, I have this power and I give it to whom, whomever I, I, I choose. Right. Uh, and of course in Hebrews, the, the one who has the power over death is Satan. So there's a connection. Uh, so, um, but in the case of, I think more religious leaders like Herod, I think fear of final judgment can be used to instill civil obedience. So there is a religious use of Christianity as we've been talking about the Nazis tried it as well, but I think only that only works if the kingdom of God is not opposed to the state. If it is, and you can't hide that fact from the people, then once again, I think fear of the state is weakened. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, and there might be another thing too, which is just that I think Christmas inspires such strong emotions and feelings. Um, you know, um, I think that also has an impact. You know, it's not just this kind of mind theology. It's this kind of lived heart theology. Uh, and that can be very, very powerful, I think. And, and I'm very dangerous if you're, uh, if you're an authoritarian. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I completely agree with that. I think it's a great way to put it. Um, you, you end the article referencing uh, the fact that Christmas is kind of like a minor culture war issue every year. And I remember there for a while, Christmas was like, there were always news stories about how controversial Christmas was and about how, you know, different politicians in different states were advocating either for the state to emphasize Christmas or to de-emphasize Christmas. Uh, over the last couple of years, I haven't noticed that as much. And I think that that has a, uh, in large part, it has a lot to do with COVID and the fact that we've been fighting culture war issues over literally everything else. It's kind of funny that Christmas is a culture war issue has been pushed yeah. to the side because there's just so much to argue about right now. But where do you see the, the state of the debate uh, about Christmas and culture right now? And what's the best approach for libertarians when they are dealing with the way that we talk about Christmas in our society? Yeah, I'm not, where do I see the debate? I'm not sure about where I see the debate. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if it comes up again. Uh, but yeah, I think you're right. We, we've kind of, we've shifted the focus to, to other stuff. Um, but as for what libertarians, especially Christian libertarians, uh, you know, how we should be approaching uh, this topic of Christmas in our American context, um, I would say, you know, what Paul says, our weapons aren't carnal. So if there is a culture war, <laughs> and we're fighting in it. We can't win it by passing laws or just by you know, generally being petulant jerks. So we win it by changing minds, by demonstrating the superiority of the Lordship of Christ. Um, and, you know, I really think we have the opportunity um, where we, at this place in time of appealing to these beloved traditions that everyone knows and values this kind of, like I said, the emotional part of Christmas, right? Um, people love some of this Christmas stuff, that, but on the other on the, on the other side of it, they don't understand the Christian message. <laughs> um, and at one point they didn't understand it because it had been, I think, misstated, right? You know, we kind of had this barnacle of like nationalism on it. And I think at this point we have these kind of new generations of people who don't know anything about Christian teaching. 
And I think that we have this opportunity to tap into the traditional stuff that they see that is actually wonderful that they love, um, but to kind of um, preach the gospel afresh without all that garbage on it. Um, and, and I think, you know, really this is a, the Christmas message has, and it's the Christian message, I think it has an inherent attractiveness to it. I mean, it should be selling itself, but, but I think our, our, you know, ranting about red cups and uh, generic holiday greetings is, is this kind of bad salesmanship that's kind of destroying the, our ability to sell it. Right. Yeah. And I, I, I completely agree with that too. And I think that the fact that uh, Christmas has obviously become very commercialized in the United States and it's com- almost completely divorced from its theological roots, at least in the minds of many people, but it is a great opportunity for the church because even though uh, no, um, very few people out that don't go to church on a regular basis, celebrate Christmas for theological reasons, you're not, they're not celebrating Advent or anything like that. They do still understand that there is a connection between Christmas, Christmas and Christianity. And even uh, I think the people that have been the most aggressive in trying to minimize the way that Christmas is portrayed by the state and in kind of public schools and in contexts like that, those people still celebrate Christmas. And so it's like you said, it's an op- it's, it's a time, it's one of the few times of year where people are thinking at least a little bit about uh, the relationship between what they are celebrating and its, uh, its theological roots. And I think that that does give us a really great opportunity to at least say, hey, there's more to it than just the presents and the parties and the Christmas movies and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Absolutely. So your your second article here, which I love because not only does it combine the issues that we're talking about right now, but it's also, you know, kind of an anti-war piece. And I'm, I'm really big on, on anti-war issues on the show because I think that they're extremely significant. And um, as you're going to say in the article, I'm not going to give it away right now, but it's it's kind of deeply intrinsic within the biblical narrative and the hope of the coming Messiah and everything mm-hmm. like that. But this piece was published over at the Libertarian Christian Institute, which congratulations, that's uh, for people like us, that's a, that's a pretty high bar. You know, you get uh, you get something published on LCI. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, but the article is called Swords yeah. into Plowshares, What World War One and Nagasaki Should Remind Us About Christmas. And to open your article, you explain based on Isaiah 2 and Isaiah chapter 9 that the coming of the Messiah would bring peace between nations. Could you explain what Isaiah is doing there? Yeah, so um, a recurring theme in Isaiah's uh, book um, is that there is this coming Messiah and that his coming is going to bring uh, with him, a different kind of world, a new messianic age, right? Uh, this age would be characterized by Gentiles recognizing Israel's God and submitting to the authority of the messianic king. And the result of that would be that weapons of war would be repurposed, you know, swords into plowshares, uh, and nations under the Messiah would stop making war with each other. Um, so there's this kind of, you know, a horizontal and a vertical dimension of peace that happens. We're at peace with God. We recognize uh, his authority, <laughs> uh, his his kingship, uh, but we also uh, change how we relate to each other. Uh, and it's very, you know, very Sermon on the Mountish, right? When you think about what, what Jesus is sort of saying, this is what my coming means. This is how you're going to, this is how you should be different. Um, and so and that that's rooted, I think, in partly in Isaiah. Yeah. No, I, I, I think, I think that's a really great, a uh, really great way of putting it. And I think that a lot of Christians often, uh, miss that. And you're going to go in your article to kind of describing how, um, this plays out historically in, um, in Japan and in World War One. So you talk about the plight of the church in Japan during the early modern era. What's, what's going on there? Because, I mean, obviously, historically, the Japanese people were not Christians. And it wasn't until the early modern era that they had the opportunity to encounter the gospel. So, so what, what's the church like in, uh, in, in early modern Japan. Yeah. So, um, 
I kind of like how, um, well, actually, before, before, I, before I quote, I was going to quote Dean Taylor. He, he wrote a book called The Change of Allegiance, and he gives a really, um, really, I think, powerful summary of, of, of part of this. But essentially what's happening in Japan prior to World War I um, is that you have a, a country that is wanting to open up its borders for trade because they recognize the value of trade. But what they absolutely do not want is Western ideas and Western religion to come in and in any way shape the culture, right? Um, and and uh, I can think of a couple of places this shows up in, in kind of popular um, uh, media. Um, one is, uh, do you ever read Gulliver's Travels by Jonathan Swift? Oh, yeah, a long time ago. It, it's kind of interesting because at one point he ends up in Japan and uh, uh, th- that, that, that becomes a, a part of the story. They're asking what country he's from because they've cut off ties with certain countries because they're sending too many missionaries over. Um, and so he has to pretend that he's from somewhere else. Anyway, uh, another place that shows up is uh, there's a book by a Japanese uh, Christian uh, named uh, Shusaku Endo, which was made into a movie by Martin Scorsese called Silence. Did you ever see Silence? No, I haven't seen that movie. Okay, sorry. You got to see Silence. It's a great movie. Okay, I- but it, 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 it's about these um, uh, Jesuit missionaries who are coming into Japan and um, they're, they've heard that basically this uh, this monk who was like the, the priest who was like their leader has abdicated from christianity he's he's fallen away and so they go to investigate and find out what's going on so anyway, that, that's a big that, that sort of background is a big part of that movie as well so essentially what's going on is the japanese government believes at a certain point that they have eviscerated all all christianity from the country it's gone uh, and then when they do finally open up uh open up a little bit i want to say that happens at maybe the beginning of the 20th century, end of the 19th century, they start to open up a little bit and they allow for freedom of religion. And suddenly these Christians, these Japanese Christians come out of the woodwork. They've been in hiding. They've been meeting secretly and now they can function out in the open. And so um, they start to build churches and uh, uh, one, one church in particular, St. Mary's Cathedral uh, in, um, uh, I want to say Nagasaki is built. And so, they come out, you know, basically this Japanese governmental oppression was not enough to defeat them. Um, and so that's, that's, that's what's going on with Japan leading up to uh, World War II. Yeah. So these Japanese Christians, as you were saying, they had, you know, been faithful and they'd been underground, but they had survived essentially mm-hmm. uh, the Japanese oppression of Christianity within that country. Of course, we fast forward about 50 years. Japan is one of the Axis powers in World War II. And in uh, August of 1945, the United States makes the decision to drop an atomic bomb on Nagasaki. And you talk about how what happens with the, the dropping of the atomic bomb uh, was incredibly contradictory with the faithfulness of the Japanese Christian church during the time that they were being persecuted. What's the, what's the, the tension there between the dropping of the bomb and the faithfulness of the Japanese church? Yeah. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm I want to quote uh, Taylor quickly, Dean Taylor, who I'd mentioned. He says early in the morning of August 9th, 1945, <clears throat> a few young American Christians from another part of the world met with two chaplains, one Lutheran and the other Catholic for a little prayer meeting before they started their day's work. After the prayer, these two American Christians climbed in their B-29 Super Fortress long-distance bomber and began heading for Nagasaki. Tragically, history records that St. Mary's Cathedral was one of the very landmarks these American Christians had been told to look for as they flew into the target zone. Shortly after the pilot identified the cathedral, he ordered the atom bomb to be dropped. Um, And... uh, I don't know if this is still Taylor. He he actually quoted, interestingly enough, an article from... um, 
uh, a libertarian uh, website, but um, this quote is either from him still or, from, or it's from uh, Gary Coles who'd written the article for, I think it was lourockwell.com. Um, at 1102 AM, Nagasaki Christianity was, was boiled, evaporated, and carbonized in a scorching radioactive fireball. The persecuted, vibrant, faithful, surviving center of Japanese Christianity had become ground zero. And what the Japanese imperial, gov imperial government could not do in over 200 years of persecution, American Christians did in nine seconds. The entire worshiping community of Nagasaki was wiped out. So <clears throat> what's so inherently contradictory about that? Um, Christmas is the story of God joining himself to humanity to reconcile us to himself and to reconcile us to each other and to bring us into his kingdom of peace, right? So the human bodies that were redeemed by the incarnation are the same human bodies that we run through with the sword, that we litter with bullets, that we vaporize with atomic bombings. And a lot of them are the bodies of our brothers and sisters in Christ. So uh, clearly we don't see Isaiah's promises <laughs> uh, the way that a lot of folks in the early church did. Um, and in fact, specifically this swords into plowshares thing, um, that shows up in uh, second century church fathers like uh, Irenaeus and Justin Martyr. They both seize on that verse. Justin says, before finding Jesus, we formerly used to murder one another, but now we refrain from making war upon our enemies. Irenaeus says, um, we are now unaccustomed to fighting, but when smitten, we offer also the other cheek. And they say, that's because Isaiah's prophecy has been fulfilled. They said something has happened. Christ has come. He's given us this message of peace. Isaiah's prophecy has been fulfilled. The nations are turning swords into plowshares. And... He screwed it up because that because they were right. That was the way it was supposed to look. And that was the way it largely did look. Yeah. Um, but we compromised, right? Uh, so anyway, yes, that's that's what they saw. Um, but we seem to think it's okay if we kill our brothers and sisters in Christ and if we kill non-Christians as well. Um, and, you know, anyway, so I'll, I'll, I'll let you go from there. But that, that's kind of where that's where I, I end up on that. Yeah, that's a great segue to one of the, the, the to, I guess, to the second story that you include in this article, which is a story that I've been familiar with since childhood. I think it's uh, portrayed in All All's Quiet on the Western Front. I don't know, one of those old World War I books, but you know, we're winding the clock a little bit back to World War One, and there's a very famous incident that happens on Christmas night uh, in uh, 1914, or Christmas Eve in 1914. So if you could just explain that story there. Again, I think a lot of uh, our, my listeners will be familiar with that story, and it's very, like, when you, when you think about it in the context that you just described, it's it's a very frustrating story to uh, to hear. But go ahead and tell us what happened in 1914 on Christmas Eve. Yeah, and I was going to say this shows up in another movie. Um, uh, my, I don't I don't speak French at all, but basically it's like um, Joyful Noel, Joyeux Noel, J O Y E U X. It's, it's also a really good movie. It's fairly recent. Um, but yeah, basically, so 1914. This is the first Christmas of the war, and so um, what kind of happens spontaneously is soldiers from both sides on different battlefields emerge in their trenches and they celebrate Christmas together. So uh, there's one location where uh, in the trenches where Germans start singing silent night and they're met with British soldiers singing the first Noel In another location, Germans shouted Merry Christmas to Brits and they're answered in kind. So combatants on both sides met in no man's land to share photos of their you know, sweethearts, loved ones, to exchange drinks, play soccer together. Uh, soldiers, actually, there was even this kind of, um, you know, basically it was like a temporary truce. Soldiers could even bury their fallen comrades without fear of being shot at by their enemies. 
So during this Christmas truce, um, soldiers from so-called Christian countries experienced Christmas in its fullness, but only for a little while. Um, you know, soon after it was back to the business of wholesale slaughter on behalf of men comfortably calling the shots many miles away from danger. Um, so, but yes, it's, it's, it's this little moment where, I mean, the true meaning, I think really of Christmas breaks in and then Christmas ends and we go back to, you know, we talked about the religious calendar versus the political calendar. We go back to our political calendar and the boss, you know, the, the, the generals say, okay, the war's back on today. <laughs> and uh, so, yes, we, we, we find ourselves back in this sort of secular political realm uh, where the rules are different. I, yeah, I, I can't think of a story that more perfectly encapsulates just how irrational war is and about how all-encompassing it is, too. Because, again, if you think about it, like, not, and not just with World War One, but with almost every war, as you said before, you have these these uh, these leaders, either military political leaders that are calling the shots a long way away from the battlefield, and you have a bunch of 18, 19, 20-year-old kids that are fighting and dying um, for, for ideas and concepts that they might not even be familiar with. Um, and a lot of the times, these combatants have much more in common with one another than they do with the leaders that are telling them to go out and fight. It's just a, it's just a horrible, horrible uh, thing to think about that these these kids, you know, they were able to spend time together on Christmas Eve, and then the next day they're back to shooting at each other, and everyone's just fine with sure. that. Yeah, yeah, and, and not only do um, you know, kids in their 20s from usually lower and middle class backgrounds uh, in different countries <laughs> probably have more in common with each other than they do with the, you know, uh, you know, managerial state, you know, <laughs> generals and, and presidents and congressmen call the shots. Um, but if they're Christians, you would say that they have the most in common, right? Um, I saw something the other day and it was kind of interesting because you couldn't tell from the profile picture if the person saying it was black or white. Um, I feel like we, we treat it a little, we might see it a little differently if we knew that information. But uh, to me, it's, 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 it's wrong either way. And what that statement was, this is someone who said, um, I have more in common with uh, non-Christians of my same race than I do with Christians of a different race. No, you don't. <laughs> you don't. You're, 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 there's one humanity in Adam. There's another humanity in Christ. You were this. Now you're that. And those ethnic distinctions have been blown away in Christ. Um, and so, yeah, I, the, the fact that, you know, somebody would, would go and kill a, a fellow Christian because, you know, some secular fat cat person tells them to do it. Uh, they're missing the, they're missing the point entirely. Why do you think that so many American Christians fail to see the implications of the Christmas story when it comes to the state and nonviolence? Like, why is it that we can't, um, that we can't translate the message of peace that we hear on Christmas into our political philosophy and the way that we understand what's happening with our, our government and with wars in general? Yeah. Um, you know, for one thing, I think the focus of Christmas has changed a little bit. It's become kind of kitschified, right? So we, we don't, we don't see some of the deeper stuff. Um, I think we, um, the value of Christmas as a family institution, which it, it, it does have, um, sometimes maybe blinds us a little bit from seeing outside of the home. You know, we, we focus sort of inward. Um, but yeah, I think also because, you know, Christmas is not a religious holiday <laughs> much anymore, right? Um, it, it served, it, it's, it's kind of a secular civil holiday. Um, and, and in general, I think, you know, Christianity has, 
in a lot of cases been joined to the state, you know, not in to the sense, the extreme sense that it was with the Nazis or whatever, but um, ultimately there's this kind of desire to make religion serve a purpose, a secular purpose. Um, it's not the end in and of itself. It's this thing that we can organize society around uh, that gives people a sense of, of national camaraderie. It makes them want to be nicer people. Maybe it makes them uh, want to obey the law um, and generally makes them happier, right? It puts, you know, you, you, it's putting springs on their wheels so that the, the, their, their, their trip to death is a little nicer. Um, that's, I think, how we think about religion in a lot of cases. And so um, a nonviolent anti-authoritarian Christianity doesn't serve the purposes of the state. Um, and so, I mean, you, you begin to see very quickly once Christianity becomes sort of co-opted by government, um, by empire, it loses a lot of its original messaging. And, um, you know, that's, 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 that's essentially where we're at. Um, you know, if, if you look at, if you've ever studied the kind of the history of um, uh, conscientious objectors in uh, the United States, um, you know, in, in, in the North during the Civil War, Lincoln jailed people who spoke out against the war. You go to World War One, and um, they had these sort of extreme, um, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Like loyalty tests. So like if someone, someone says, I'm a Mennonite, I can't go to war. Um, they would, you know, take them out into a field and put a gun to their head and say, well, if you're really serious, then, you know, um, and, you know, sometimes abuse them, beat them. Uh, you kind of see that a little bit in, um, uh, sorry, I'm a movie fan. Obviously you can probably tell, uh, there's that uh, movie about Desmond Doss that Mel Gibson directed. Um, can't think of the name of it off the top of my head, but oh, he was a conscious. Yeah. Yeah. Great movie. Yep. Yeah. So, I mean, Basically, if somebody says, I'm going to obey Christ and not my government, you know, they're like, well, <laughs> that, that, that doesn't compute, right? There's a, you know, Christ serves the state. You know, if, if you can't serve the state, then we don't have any use for that kind of Christ. Um, so, yeah, that, that's kind of a longer bloated answer, but uh, that's some of what's going into that, I think. Yeah, no, I think that was a really great answer and a really great way to kind of wrap up the conversation. Um, I do have one big picture question for you before you leave. Uh, and again, hmm. I'm going to have to have you back on to talk about a, a number of different things. It's been a great conversation. What, what is, from a big picture perspective, the relationship between Christianity and libertarianism? If you were trying to, because I, I, I get this a lot from not the people in my personal life, because I, I feel like for a, like a lot of my close friends and family members, I basically convince them that libertarianism makes sense on its own, but it's very difficult. Like when you are talking to people on the internet or when you meet somebody that's new and you say that, Hey, I'm a Christian, but I'm also a libertarian. They don't know what either of those things mean. And a lot of people yeah. don't understand that there, because I, I think they're so used to thinking about Christian political commitments within the left, right framework that we are told exists within the United States. So what's the relationship, but how would you explain that to somebody? Yeah. So I would say that I think libertarianism is the highest expression of natural law. So it recognizes our human rights and what those rights entail. And uh, it exemplifies what gets sometimes called the silver rule. Don't do to others what you don't want them doing to you. 
which is really just what, what, what we call the non-aggression principle, right? Don't start nothing, there won't be nothing. Um, but Christianity, I think, goes further. So it exhorts us to do unto others what we would have them do unto us, the golden rule. Uh, it commands not just non-aggression, but love for our enemies. And um, I think you might disagree with me on this point, but I would say that it actually forbids all lethal violence, even in self-defense. Um, but so Christianity's compatibility with libertarianism is um, largely in both philosophies shared rejection of at least the initiation of force. Um, if political activism has a role in the Christian life, and that is a debatable point, um, you know, the early church and uh, the Mennonites and Anabaptists seem to have a much more separate kind of idea. But, um, but, but let's say it does. Let's say political activism has a role in the Christian life. I would say that activism should be a libertarian kind of activism. It's an activism which refuses to force our will on others, but instead speaks prophetically against war and the violence of the state. Um, so what I would say basically in some is um, libertarianism gives us the best ethic for living in this world, assuming there's no world to come and that Jesus isn't king. <laughs> um, but Christianity's self-sacrificial love, um, I think, is only consistently rational if Christ is king and if this world isn't all that there is. Uh, libertarianism is, I think, how I expect all of my non-Christian neighbors to live if they want to make any claim of being ethical people. Um I think that viewing libertarianism in this way allows us to see it as the best this world can do um, without making it an idol that replaces the kingdom of God in our hearts. And so as much as I see some kind of compatibility, I want to make a distinction here. Libertarianism is not the kingdom of God. And it's, it's, like I said, I think it's just the most just way that, that pagans and Christians and atheists can live together. (laughs) Right. Yep. I agree with that. Beautiful conclusion. Well, Cody Cook, this has been awesome. Where can people find out about you, you and your work? Yeah. Um, cantusfirmus.com, C-A-N-T-U-S dash F-I-R-M-U-S.com. Um, and yeah, and, and from there, there are links to like Twitter and YouTube and, um, uh, Facebook page. I recently started a TikTok. I hate TikTok, but uh, the, the algorithms are better. I'm, I'm re- I reach people better than I do like on YouTube. So I'm, I'm, I'm giving it a shot, but I'm not doing any of the TikTok dances or the, um, uh, you know, what do you call that stuff? The lip sync or anything like that. It's just, just, you know, short, short forum discussions. Um, I've got like a frequently asked questions on Christian anarchism uh, thing that I'm doing. They're all like really short videos. Uh, but yeah, so that, that would be a good way to also the, the podcast Cantus Firmus you can probably find on iTunes and Spotify and all that stuff. All right. Well, again, Cody, thank you so much for being on the show today. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Protestant Libertarian Podcast. If you have any questions or comments or thoughts about the show, please reach out to me at theprotestantlibertarian at gmail.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at ProLibertyPod. Again, you can follow me on Twitter at ProLibertyPod. You can also support the show by leaving a rating or a review on your favorite podcast app. Thank you guys so much for listening, and we'll see you next week.